reading is from Psalm 96. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations... The Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And uh, keeping in mind that there is a command here for us to proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day, so that's all the time, in other words, uh, keep that in mind as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read from verses 17 through to 34, and the text for the sermon is just verse 26. Corinthians 11 from verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
Now our text, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the significance of the Lord's Supper, and especially with respect to the return of the Lord Jesus, we pray that you would use this to increase and to strengthen our Christian hope and the eagerness of our anticipation for that coming day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Covenant people of God, I would expect that most of you have a pretty good idea, you're fairly familiar with the significance of the Lord's Supper. And when we have profession of faith candidates, this is one of the questions we ask them, what is the significance of the Lord's Supper? And there are around about five things that we expect them to explain to us. Specifically, and no doubt you'll be more familiar with some of these points than others, but specifically the Lord's Supper is about union with Christ, Uh, Very obviously, it is about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and what he accomplished in that. Uh, But also in the eating and drinking, it is about spiritual nourishment that we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are nourished, it is about growing our spiritual growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is also about our unity with one another. And uh, one more point too, that it has implications for how we live in light of these truths, that we live as a people who are growing, being nourished in the Lord Jesus Christ, living in light of his sacrifice for us, and so forth. So those are the things that we're perhaps a little bit more familiar with, some of those more than others. But there is one other extremely important point that maybe gets a little bit less attention than those other things that I mentioned. And that is the fact that the Lord's Supper also points to the return of the Lord Jesus. And we see this in our form. You'll hear that read uh, shortly in the service. But our our form for the Lord's Supper cites Matthew 26, verse 29, which says that we are assured by the Supper that our Lord Jesus will come again to receive us to himself and that we shall sit and drink with him in the newness of the kingdom. And then, of course, in our text too, you have a very similar thought. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. How then are we to understand this? 
What is the connection between the Lord's Supper and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I would suggest that the clue to that is in the two truths that are brought together in the text, the Lord's death and his coming again. And if we understand how those are connected, then we understand how the Lord's Supper brings those two things together. Two points then, proclaiming the Lord's death, firstly, and secondly, doing so until he comes again. Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. In the first place then, concerning the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said before, this is something that is probably the thing that we're most familiar with of all about the Lord's Supper and what it signifies and seals, what it teaches and assures us about. We are taught and reassured that the Lord Jesus sacrificed himself for us to the spilling of his blood and the the pain and agony, the suffering of his human body and soul, uh, that he did that for our sakes, for the covering of our sins, and that is, of course, a fundamental part of the gospel. And whenever we participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are involving ourselves in something that signifies and seals those truths, and which is therefore sometimes described as a kind of visible sermon a visible kind of uh, preaching of the word because it's something that involves all of our senses. It involves our senses of sight and sound and taste and smell and touch all involved towards this same truth, this same central gospel truth that the Lord Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice to cover our sins. And therefore, when we involve ourselves in this, we are involving ourselves in a proclamation through this visible word, a gospel, a visible gospel proclamation, proclaiming the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that's connected with it, his resurrection as well, and all that it accomplishes. uh, All of that is summed up by the word proclaiming his death. And that is an enormous privilege that we are involved in that. You may think that it's a a privilege to be... uh, a minister in our churches to preach each week and to administer the sacrament on occasion. You may think that's a privilege. Some of you may think that's more of a burden than a privilege, but it is a privilege. But this is a privilege that we all share in, the privilege of participating, and again today, in a visible sermon about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the privilege of proclaiming his death and what it stands for and his resurrection again today. But of course, proclaiming the death of the Lord Jesus is not only about what we do in our liturgy and in our our order of service, administering the supper in a biblical way as we seek to do to the glory of God. No, the visible sermon that we proclaim in the Lord's Supper must also be backed up by lives that are lived unto the Lord in light of his death. How will our proclamation of Christ's death be received if we come to it and we're making that proclamation acting contrary to everything that the supper stands for? If we come acting acting as those who are in our hearts at least partly if not wholly hostile to the gospel, hostile to the new covenant in his blood, hostile to the word of God, 
if we come with our doctrine or our life as a kind of anti-sermon, as a kind of anti-proclamation, rather than um, standing for all that the work of Christ implies, his death and his resurrection. Now, I want you to note that the Apostle Paul goes on to warn against this very thing in the verses ahead of our text, after our text. He warns about the guilt that comes to us if we come to the table with lives that are fundamentally in opposition to what the table stands for. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 27. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Verse 29. And the apostle commands that instead we judge or discern the body rightly, that we come to the table in a self-examining way. Verse 28. And that we judge ourselves rightly in verse 31. Which means that we are to come with an understanding, a right understanding of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of his body and its implications. And uh, also that we come uh, understanding how that impacts our lives during the week as well. And how it impacts the church, which is the body of Christ. Understanding all of those things and our place as uh, those individuals serving God and also doing so as part of the church, that we come as those who are committed to all of those truths. Rather than coming as those who undervalue the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who undervalue his death and undervalue his resurrection and undervalue the doctrine that comes from that, and undervalue the life that ought to spring from that, from those who are growing spiritually nourished by the Lord Jesus Christ, and those or coming as those who have not a clue what it means to be part of the church, which is the body of Christ, and are acting contrary to that as well, that we understand and don't undervalue those things uh, and don't come with that anti-proclamation of Christ. And you see, it's because of these things that a number of our practices flow in our churches and here also in this congregation. It's because of this, because of the weightiness of this, that we do not allow children to come to the Lord's Supper. That those who come rightly understand and rightly self-examine themselves and rightly understand what church life is all about. And so we look for a certain maturity, those who have grown in Christ uh, to that point of understanding these things. Uh, and it's also why we link together attendance at the Lord's table to uh, subscription to our confessions, subscription by office bearers and also by members, what we call membership and confessional membership. Uh, we do that because the confessions are that which spell out and sum up that doctrine that we have to be upholding, the doctrine of God's word that flows from what Christ has done. So we, un we have a, a summary of that doctrine and a spelling out of that doctrine about Christ's work and about Christ's body, the church, and about the implications that come to us from those things. And since we desire no profaning of the Lord's table and no judgment coming to those who might come without understanding of these things or with an anti-proclamation of those things, so we take the fencing or guarding or supervising of the table by the elders 
very, very seriously. And we do so because uh, one of these points that I raised at the start, one of the more familiar ones to us about the significance of the Lord's Supper, is that it has implications for how we live each day. And we take that seriously. Okay, but what does all of that have to do with Christ's return? We've seen that there are implications there, Matthew 26, 29, and our text make it clear that this visible sermon, the Lord's Supper, is a proclamation of the end of the age, of that wonderful consummation in which all of us will be sitting down and enjoying the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, as per Revelation 19, verse 7 forward. We've seen that there is this connection that the Lord's Supper is not only about our present blessedness, but that's what we often focus on, but it's also about our future blessedness. In fact, and and this is a, a somewhat deeper point of theology or what's sometimes referred to as eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. Uh, It's a rather deeper point, but we could even regard the present blessedness that we have in Christ as the blessedness of the age to come, that future fullness of Christ's kingdom as something which has, the future has broken into this evil present age in the coming of Christ. So that now this future, this age to come with the fullness of Christ, this age to come has broken into this present world and the, uh, this present age. And the two are travelling along together. The age to come, which is broken in, and the present evil age travelling along side by side until the day the Lord Jesus returns and he takes this present evil age and he rolls it up like a scroll and throws it away, leaving only the fullness of the age to come in place. So we could regard our present blessedness as the breaking in of the age to come through the coming of Christ. That, as I say, is a deeper point of theology that makes this connection between what the Lord's Supper teaches about Christ's work on earth and what happens when he returns. But I want to explain this uh, future element in the Lord's Supper a little bit more simply, to put it this way. That is that the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, this once for all and powerful finished work of Christ, of which the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal, it is that which guarantees the wedding supper at the end. There must be the wedding supper at the end because the Lord Jesus has done this once for all work in history and because he has been completely victorious over Satan, sin and death. And therefore the final wedding supper must come and it will come because that victory is complete and it is once and for all. This present age must come to an end for that same reason. The present Lord's Supper is then a foretaste of the Supper to come. Of that perfect fellowship with Christ which Satan, sin and death cannot touch because they have been defeated. Uh, In a similar vein, 
we could think of Acts 1 verses 9 to 11, where the angels explained the absence of the Lord Jesus Christ when he ascended. And they explained his absence in terms of his guaranteed return. They didn't say the Lord Jesus disappeared in order to make you question whether you're ever going to see him again. It's a a dangerous tendency for us with our all-too-common seeing-is-believing mentality and we think, well, we can't see the Lord Jesus now, so maybe he'll never return. That's a dangerous tendency. But the angels didn't explain it in that term. They spoke against that by saying that he disappeared in order to sit, or implying he disappeared to sit at his Father's right hand, interceding for us daily, applying these once-for-all benefits that... He won, completely won, in the work that he did on the cross and in his resurrection. That this, as a result of the victory that he had on the cross, and that he will keep doing that, keep sitting at his Father's right hand, keeping on interceding for us as an outworking of that victory, until the day, the assured day of his return. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And that is true because of what is signified in the Lord's Supper, because of that victory that he achieved on the cross. You know, uh, peripheral vision is a very useful ability. A number of young people in the church uh, learning to drive at the present time, getting learner's licenses and having all sorts of... Uh, experiences with their uh, peripheral vision there, watching what's going on on the road around them. And uh, you learn as you begin to drive to keep an eye on what's behind you, looking in the mirrors, the revision mirror, side mirrors and so on. Uh, You learn also to be aware of what's on either side, pedestrians who may suddenly run across the road. Uh, You learn also to keep your eyes on what's ahead, All of that at the same time, watching what's coming towards you, other cars in front of you or coming the other way, uh, and peripheral vision is very important for that. Well, the Lord's Supper is calling us to a spiritual peripheral vision. It's calling us to look back to what Christ has done a couple of thousand years ago, that total victory on the cross. So we look back to that. But it's also calling upon us to be aware of all the present benefits that surround us on all sides. It's calling on us also to look up to where Christ is in heaven, seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, and it's calling us to look ahead, to look ahead to the day that he returns to bring us to sit at the wedding supper. And this, you see, is what it means to fix your eyes upon Jesus. It means to look back, to look around, to look up, and to look ahead to and at him, as we find that in the pages, find him in the pages of the scripture. And that is where the Lord's Supper points us. And that is what it tells us to proclaim. To proclaim his death, his resurrection, and what it results in now. But not just to proclaim his death. It doesn't just say that. It says that we are to proclaim his death until he comes again. In other words, we are to proclaim also 
his return in glory at the end. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is our desire to see your name proclaimed among the, the, the nations and proclaimed also in this congregation so that all may give glory to your name. Father, will you use us to help strengthen the saints and also herald the gospel to the world? And will you use our services, including the service of the Lord's Supper and our various teaching ministries in the church and the various aspects of church life and also our personal and collective witness, will you use all of that to that, to that end? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you wish to uh, follow the form that we use, you can find that uh, form number two on page 22 at the back of the Psalter Hymnal. Page 151, that should be, sorry. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was delivered up to be crucified, the Lord Jesus instituted the sacrament of Holy Communion, saying, This do in remembrance of me. In obedience to that command, we now celebrate this memorial feast. We therefore bid all of you who have confessed your Lord and who have truly examined yourselves according to the admonition of the Apostle Paul to come in contriteness of heart and assurance of faith to commune with Christ in the partaking of this Holy Supper. As we now draw near, let us consider for what purpose the Lord has instituted his Supper. Namely, that we should keep it in remembrance of him, and that he by this sacrament should nourish and refresh us unto eternal life. To observe this holy supper in remembrance of him is to proclaim our Lord's death until he comes again. In partaking of this supper, therefore, we remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is the Saviour promised to the fathers in the Old Testament, that he is the eternal and only begotten Son of God, that he assumed our human nature, in which he fulfilled for us all obedience and the righteousness of God's law, and that he bore for us the wrath of God under which we should have perished everlastingly. We remember that he was bound that we might be loosed from our sins, that he was innocently condemned to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God, that he became a curse for us to fill us with his blessing, and that he humbled himself on the cross to hell's deep agony, which wrung from him the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, that God might never forsake us? We remember also that he was buried to sanctify the grave for us. That he was raised for our justification. That he is exalted at God's right hand. And that he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And we remember that the shedding of his blood has confirmed for us the new and eternal testament, the covenant of grace. As we thus commemorate the death of Jesus Christ, we are assured that he will truly nourish and refresh us 
with his crucified body and shed blood to everlasting life. This he promises in the institution of this supper, saying of the bread, this is my body, and of the wine, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. With these words, our Lord directs our faith to his perfect sacrifice, once often on the cross, as the only ground of our salvation. He also assures us that he, by his death, has taken away our sin, the cause of our eternal death, and has obtained for us the life-giving spirit. By this spirit, who dwells in Christ as in the head and in us as his members, he brings us into true communion with himself and makes us partakers of all his riches, of life eternal, righteousness and glory. By this same spirit, he causes us, together with all true believers, to be united as members of one body in true brotherly love. As the Holy Apostle says, seeing that we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And inasmuch as it is said to us, as often as ye eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he come, we are assured by this holy supper that our Lord Jesus will come again to receive us to himself, and that we shall sit down with him and drink with him the fruit of the vine in the newness of our Father's kingdom. We may now obtain these blessings. Let us implore God for his grace. Let us pray. Merciful God and Father, whose grace abounds beyond all our sins, we pray that in this supper in which we commemorate the death of your dear Son, you will so work in our hearts that we may yield ourselves ever more fully to Jesus Christ. May our contrite hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit be nourished and refreshed with his body and blood, yea, with him, true God and man, the only heavenly bread, so that we may no longer live in our sins, but he in us and we in him. So confirm us in the covenant of grace, we pray, that we may not doubt that you will forever be our gracious Father, nevermore imputing our sins to us and abundantly providing us with all things necessary for body and soul as your dear children and heirs. Grant us your grace that we may cheerfully take up our cross, deny ourselves, confess our Saviour, and in all temptations and trials expect our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, who at his coming will make our mortal bodies like his glorified body and take us to himself in eternity. Answer us, O God and merciful Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit belong all praise and adoration, now and evermore. Amen. Beloved in the Lord, since the Lord has now nourished our souls at his table, let us jointly praise his holy name with thanksgiving, and let everyone say in his heart, Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Jehovah is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us after our iniquities. 
For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so Jehovah pitieth them that fear him. Bless Jehovah, ye his angels, that are mighty in strength, that fulfill his word, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless Jehovah, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless Jehovah, all ye his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. Now unto him that sitteth on the throne, and unto the Lamb, be the blessing, and the honour, and the glory, and the dominion, for ever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. A merciful God and Father, we thank you with all our hearts that in your boundless grace you have given us your only begotten Son as a mediator and a sacrifice for our sins and as our food and drink unto life eternal. We thank you too that you give us a true faith whereby we become partakers of these your benefits. And since you have through your Son Jesus Christ ordained the Holy Supper for the strengthening of that faith, we beseech you, O faithful Father, that through your Holy Spirit, this remembrance of our Lord and proclamation of his death may truly increase our faith and enrich our fellowship with Christ. May this proclamation of our Lord's death also be used by you to bring others into this blessed fellowship, so that all your children may be gathered in to share with us the joy of your salvation. Hear us, Heavenly Father, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. sing God's praises before the nations. That's a proclamation also of our righteous and just King. Psalter Hymnal 187 stanzas 1, 2 and then 4 through to 6. We'll stand to sing and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 187 stanzas 1, 2 and 4 to 6.
blessing as our doxology. We sing number 281, stanzas 9 and 10. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.